this poetic uh, section of Solomon's book. This is one of the most well-known in the whole of Scripture. A while back, several years now, a female cousin of mine rang me with some urgency, with some awful news. And her boyfriend had uh, collapsed in the street. And she wanted me there, not just because I was a relative of hers, but because I was a Christian. And I got there and he'd suffered a brain hemorrhage and he was in a coma. And we were all gathered around the bed. And then my cousin asked me if I would, you know, read some Bible or, you know, pray. In other words, do something religious. Because people do that in times of, you know, urgency. And so, yeah, I was able to uh, have an opportunity there. And I, I chose to read these verses. And after I'd read them, I had a chance to explain something, just for a minute, explain something to them. Bear in mind that neither my uh, cousin or her boyfriend or any of the extended family are followers of Jesus Christ. So I had this great opportunity to, to explain to them and pray with them and just remind and encourage them to think about God being sovereign and all-wise and everything being according to his timing. And it seemed to be appreciated. Even though this whole book of Ecclesiastes is God-centred, these particular verses have so impressed people that they're used in the secular realm as well. Some of you will remember I was at a funeral last year of my friend's son, who was only 30 years old. And uh, it was quite natural for the family, who were all atheists, to choose a, a secular funeral. There was to be no Christian content at all. No hymns, no prayers, no Bible. The woman at the front was one of these uh, humanist uh, celebrants. And so she advertises, uh, you know, doing funerals without God <laughs> in them. Yet, the first thing she did when she got up was read these verses from Ecclesiastes. She stole them. You may remember, if you're very old, you may remember in the middle of the 60s, there was a band called The Birds. Yeah. Remember them? Yeah. And you'll remember, you'll remember them that they did a song based on these verses and it, was, it wasn't in the right order but they, they covered most of them in, in this song. That was quite surprising. But what, what those two examples show is even those who don't belong to God can get some comfort from these verses. People see that these verses, you know, they, they speak so much of the human experience. We have things in there outside our control, 
we have things which we experience, we have things which we do to other people. And so it's all about real life. And in that, in that sense, those verses are quite attractive to, to humanity in general. But it is those who belong to God who are able to read them properly. We understand how these fit in to the bigger picture, something that the world cannot see. Atheists even will get some comfort uh, from these verses, believing that there's perhaps some meaning in this universe. And some who actually believe in God will deceive themselves into thinking that, you know, God is their friend and he kindly arranges their lives for them. Students of the Bible, however, with the aid of the Holy Spirit uh, within us, well, we see something more. We don't just see the governing hand of God in our lives, but we know God personally, yeah? We know God as our Father. I thought I should make some mention about the structure of this poem uh, before we, we, we carry on. Now, if you look at it again, from verses 2 to 8, we have this seven verses. Each verse has two lines, right? And each line contains a contrast. So take the very first line in verse 2. We have time to be born and a time to die. And, well, it seems to be speaking about this, uh, you know, natural cycle. And so, birth and death and everything in between are all done, all take place according to the timing of God in heaven. You may also notice that the lines, they're in pairs, of course, okay? They're in pairs. So verse 2 contains two lines, a pair of statements, and then verse 3 has the next pair. Now, both statements in those pairs, they say the, the same thing, but in a slightly different way. It's quite common in Hebrew writing. So in verse 2 say, you know, we should be able to see both birth and death and planting and reaping. Well, these are all about, as I say, nat the natural cycles of life. Now, like with all passages of scripture, they can be preached on in 101 different ways. This is why on the internet you will find, find it thousands of sermons on the same passage of scripture and yet each one is unique. So what's my method today? My method today is to take each verse in turn. So in other words we're going to look at a pair of statements at a time. And I'd like to um, summarise what each pair is generally about. And using that, I want to then say something each time about Jesus Christ. If you're wondering why I decided to relate these to our Saviour, I'll tell you. 
If they apply, if these verses apply to mankind, then they apply to Jesus of Nazareth, because in his incarnation he became a true man. But because he is also God, we're to remember that he is the very God who ordains all these experiences in our lives. In other words, he has both experienced these things and causes them to be experienced by us. Now let me emphasize, I'm not claiming today that any meanings that I attach to these verses are what they are all about. Not at all. I'm simply giving you examples, examples of what they might remind us of. And to be honest, I'm doing all this as an excuse to speak more to you about your Lord and Saviour, Jesus Christ, to remind you about different aspects of his, uh, his uh, person and his work. So, with that all said, let's begin by looking at our first pair of statements in verse 2. I've already mentioned these couple of lines are about natural cycles in life. And in that, we, we, we share the experience of Christ. He was born in the normal way that people are born. And just like us, who are all going to die, he too was destined to experience death. His, however, was of course unique because in the face of sins committed by us and everyone else the God of all justice demanded a penalty be paid for some people in this world they will forever pay that penalty in their own bodies for others those of you here are born again the penalty for your sin was experienced by our Saviour. And when he died, it was timed to the exact second by God. In verse 3, we see the next theme. We have uh, breaking down and killing versus building up and healing. So I propose that we think of the overall picture there as destruction and construction. So we can see an example of this in the way the Son of God uh, destroys works which don't honour him and then he builds his church elsewhere. In the book of Revelation, you will remember that Christ wrote, uh, through John Christ, addressed these letters to seven churches in Asia Minor. It's obvious, isn't it, that we are meant to look at those letters to them and see if any of that applies to us. Now, the congregation he wrote to at Ephesus were in a fairly good condition in terms of doctrine, in terms of contending for the faith, but they lacked love. 
So after a commendation from Jesus, they received a rebuke. Jesus told them they needed to repent because of their lack of love. If they didn't repent, Jesus warned them he'd remove their lampstand from them. That lampstand was a picture of Christ's presence in the church. He was prepared to remove himself from the congregation. It's a terrifying thought. The point for us today is that Jesus has, in the past, and will in the future, withdraw from individual churches. He will withdraw himself, and they won't know it's happened. They'll think everything's fine. But such unrepentant congregations are in a process of being destroyed. Every congregation of professing Christians thinks that they're needed by God. <clears throat> but if the Lord Jesus Christ thinks it's necessary, he'll leave a disobedient church to its own devices and raise up a way elsewhere. A place where people honour him. By abandoning one work, he demolishes it. And by uh, making himself present elsewhere, he builds his real church. Let's move on to verse 4. Well, this little set in verse 4, it quite clearly describes both sadness and happiness. We're all acquainted with both. I'm guessing most of us would say there's probably not a week goes by when we don't experience some kind of sadness for something. Jesus himself understood sadness too. And a good example was when he prayed shortly before his crucifixion. He knew it was close. I hesitate to say he knew exactly what it was going to be like because nothing like this had ever happened before. But I am sure that he knew that the torment he was to undergo would be off the scale. In a prophecy about the suffering Messiah, the psalmist tells us that the sweet soul of Jesus was polarised by his own Father in heaven. And the knowledge that this was going to happen caused extraordinary sadness and anguish in Jesus' heart as he prayed before the event. I'm not aware of any reference in Scripture to uh, Jesus Christ laughing. I don't know if you know any. Now, we're not to think that this proves he didn't laugh or smile. If he did, it's, as far as I can see, it's not recorded. In the second psalm, you might recall it. The second psalm, it, it talks about God's enemies 
conspiring against him. Why did the heathen rage? Why did the heathen rage, it says? It says, the kings of the earth set themselves. It says they oppose the Lord and his anointed. Now, they're conspiring against God. Now, the fact they think they can have any success taking on God is laughable. And this is no doubt why the psalmist it chooses to present a picture of God sitting in the heavens laughing at these people. Christ, as God, blessed forever, rules this world. He may not be literally laughing at his enemies right now, but it's a great picture to show his contempt for their ridiculous efforts to oppose him. So when you hear scientists tell you that the world miraculously made itself, Jesus laughs. When the authorities clamp down on Christian activity and thinking they have some victory, Jesus laughs. And when savage men kill believers thinking they can resist the advance of the church of God, Jesus laughs. All the sophisticated systems of this world to oppose God's purposes will fail. And whereas our future will see increased happiness, their future is one of sorrows which will never end. Verse 5, folks. Verse 5. Now this, is, uh, this has been something of a headache to Bible students down the years because, you know, we can see, we can see uh, the general idea, can't we, in each of these pairs of statements. But this one seems a bit strange. The first line in verse 5 is talking about you know, throwing stones away and then collecting them. But the second line is about hugging people. So there seems to be no connection. Well, what do we know? We know Solomon was a very, very wise man. We know that he deliberately structured these verses in a certain way, in a consistent way. I find it difficult to believe that he did that and then stuck some awkward verse in the middle just to confuse people. Um, I think it's fair to say that if the other pairs of statements have connections, then so uh, this one should. I stood back and looked at these verses and what struck me was the gathering of stones and the embracing of a person. So this is why I interpret them as speaking of including or excluding. <clears throat> so we're talking about gathering in or we're talking about keeping at a distance. Now that can speak to us about a whole load of things, but as an illustration, I thought I'd mention uh, Jesus and Peter. Jesus brought Peter into his inner circle, a place of great honour, but all of a sudden we see Jesus 
uh, speaking harshly to Peter, Peter uh, even, even suggesting that he, he was like Satan himself, Jesus said to him. There was inclusion. There was exclusion. One of the sermons I preached on in John's letters was called How to Be Inhospitable, which sounds a strange title. Now, John's letters are saturated with references to love, not just the love of God for his people. How important it is for us uh, to understand that, but also how vital it is for us to love God's people as well, to love each other. That's what's in John's letters. When you came here today, friends, you sought out fellowship with God's people. And the more you seek God's fellowship, seek fellowship with God's people, the more you embrace your brothers and sisters in Christ. We gather them together, gather them to us, if you like. But John's letters, I found, also contain warnings. And one warning is about people who come preaching a false gospel. John urges believers to have nothing to do with such people. He wants us to shun them. In one of Paul's letters, he talks about avoiding fellow Christians, can you believe? These are those who are walking disorderly in a serious way. If, if a believer in this church was involved in, say, some kind of serious you know, sexual immorality, and they were not repenting of it, but were bragging about it, then it's the duty of everyone here to exclude them from fellowship, to have nothing to do with them, to not go for a coffee with them, to not visit them. You might think that's harsh for the Lord to lay down in the scriptures for us, but the purpose for this type of shunning is to shock and to shame that person. The hope is that God would use their banishment to bring about repentance. And if that happened, we would, of course, rejoice. We would rejoice and we would heartily embrace our returning brother. Inclusion and exclusion. Let's have a look at verse 6 now. We have the looking for something and keeping it as opposed to throwing something else away or losing it. It seems to be about things of different value to a person. You could be digging for gold. You want to find gold and keep hold of it, but any fool's gold you find is just thrown away. In the same way, Christ Jesus attaches different values, different value to uh, different people. For example, think about how he sought out his disciples, in particular those 12. He prayed to his father one day uh, and mentioned how he rounded up the group the father had entrusted to him. He looked after them all, he valued them. But there was one exception. There was a traitor among them. The man Judas was planted there to bring about the assassination 
of Jesus of Nazareth. I've lost just this one, Jesus said. I've just lost this one. He knew this was how the prophecies about his death were going to be fulfilled. Think about this. Uh, some of you have seen this. Uh, some of you have seen this little gospel sort of card thing I have made recently. It's called the Three Crosses. And well, the, the scene in that is Calvary's Hill. Jesus is flanked by two criminals. They both are guilty according to the law of man, and both are guilty as sinners. Uh, guilty of breaking God's law and they deserve his wrath. Their only chance is a work of God the Holy Spirit to open their eyes to their sin and open their eyes to the man hung next to them who was the saviour of sin. Saviour from sin, I should say. <laughs> well, God the Holy Spirit does it. God the Holy Spirit does exactly that. But only to one of them. And out of nowhere, that one has a change of heart and repents. And Jesus, as you know, he acknowledges this repentance and promises the man a gift. A gift belonging only to God's saved people. That is fellowship with him in glory. The other one is left in his sin. It isn't that he's a worse sinner than the other one. God simply decides to give spiritual life to one and not the other. And we should not dare to question God's wisdom in doing that. Judgment Day will show just how keenly Jesus Christ chooses to value some people and not others. The ones who during their lives were sought out by Jesus and lovingly held by him will be raised from the dead in a state of glory. The ones who he had no interest in, who he did just not value will be raised only to be judged and imprisoned. Friends, if you find yourself today in the kingdom of God, a true disciple, remember this. The reason you trusted was not because you are less wicked than anyone else. The reason you trusted in Christ was down to the mercy of God and the wisdom of God. Let's move on to verse 7. We have the tearing or sowing, keeping quiet or speaking your mind. Again, there might not seem to be a, a lot of connection at first glance. Well, I put being quiet as equivalent to sitting peacefully in a chair sewing. And being vocal, I would pair up with tearing stuff. Now remember, I'm aware of many different interpretations of these verses, but for what it's worth, I'd say the verses are referring to being subdued, 
versus being outspoken. We can think of examples in our own lives where we've exercised each of these. But what about Jesus? Well, I think the classic example has to be his interrogation. But when Jesus was being questioned by the, um, the council of Jewish religious leaders, he at first kept silent. Caiaphas says to him, don't you want to even defend yourself? Jesus was quiet and then, and then the high priest persisted and eventually Jesus did say something. And I think Jesus was showing us that it's sometimes appropriate to hold your peace, to keep silent. When Jesus was later interviewed by Pilate, uh, Jesus' silence was so surprising. The scriptures say that Pilate was amazed just by Jesus not speaking. You'll remember another occasion, of course, when Jesus marched into the temple and started shouting at people. He knew when to use his words to tear things down, things which were objectionable to God. And he knew when to use his words to repair that which was torn down. For us, friends, we should pray for wisdom to know whether to keep silent or speak out on something. And we should be aware that if we choose to say what's on our mind, we should know that our words can cause damage or they can repair. God promises us wisdom to use our words in a godly way if we ask him. So ask, ask and receive. Well, as we go on to our final verse, verse 8, hopefully we'll all agree that it's speaking about uh, both hostility and peace. In the scriptures, Jesus Christ is portrayed as one who crushes entire nations, but also one who gives seasons of peace to nations. We know the Lord has this attitude of detestation or hatred to some and love for others. The biggest war in history is being carried out by God. It's a war which spans the centuries and involves all nations. And the centre point of this whole war was the era when the Word became flesh in the person of Christ. Calvary was a <coughs> masterstroke. The Messiah, he'd been arrested, he'd been treated brutally, he had an unjust trial and he was condemned to die. And there we see him hanging on a cross, dying in pain, just like a common criminal. Had he failed? Well, it was no doubt a day of great rejoicing to Satan and his angels. The evil one had possessed the heart of Judas to carry out his clever plans. 
and everything seemed to have come together. It was also a time of rejoicing for those who had Satan as their father. That crowd of people, for example, in Jerusalem, who effectively bullied Pilate into killing Jesus of Nazareth. But every thought and act of wickedness in the hearts of men and angels had been fulfilling God's purposes rather than this. Because when Jesus suffered and died, he provided salvation for all his elect people, so that at the last day he would give them life eternal. It was a, a great, great victory to those who could see. And what about that marvellous resurrection of Jesus, the resurrection from the grave? In this he dealt a mighty hammer blow to the kingdom of Satan. In this he won a victory over Satan who it said had the power over death. And now the ascended captain of our salvation rules on high. And the devils know. The devils know they have very little time. And even as they try to cause as much trouble as they can in God's kingdom, you know, before he has them carried off to that lake of fire, they still fulfil his will. In their great defeat, as they hope to cause at least some disruption, God will deprive them even of that small consolation. And what's the result of that great victory? An explosion of love. A love of God for his children which cannot be described fully. A strange type of love given to us whereby we are able to love the people who persecute us and hate us as well as our friends. <clears throat> and our Lord and Saviour also fills us with his peace. The indescribable love of God is shared with us, his people. But more important than that even, there is now peace between us and God, where before there was warfare. There's peace between us and God. Now he remains on a war footing against all those who oppose him in this world. But to us, now we were on the Lord's side. We are fellow soldiers of Christ and all the brethren. And friends, when this war is over, we shall see the kingdom of God come in all its fullness on earth as it is in heaven. Everything which happens in your life takes place at an appointed time. There was a perfect time for you to come into this world. According to this perfect timing of God, you've been sent a mixture of blessings and trials. And finally, no matter how your exit from this world takes place, no matter how uncomfortable it might be, you should make every effort to rest in the knowledge 
that there is also a time for you to die. And what then? What then? Will God forget us when we're dead? I'll let Job speak to you about this. I'll let Job reassure you. He says, Oh, that you would hide me in the grave, that you would conceal me until your wrath be past, that you would appoint me a set time and remember me. So yes, friends, there is even an appointed time in which God will raise you to life eternal. And as you find your way through life, well, I, I pray that you would lay these scriptures to heart and just allow you, uh, allow these scriptures uh, to remind you again that God is sovereign in everything in your life. Amen.